Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you, another edition of the AAMFT podcast, where we strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. Many times we talk about current issues. We've been getting lots of requests, though, for specific populations, especially populations that normally don't access traditional means to systemic individual couple and family therapy. And today we're talking about Asian Americans. We're addressing culture, gender, and power with Asian American client systems. And we're doing that with Jessica Chen Fen, Associate Professor of MFT at the Fuller Philological Seminary. Asian Americans juggle the intersections of multiple social identities and societal discourses. They respond to experiences, things like immigration, marginalization, patriarchy. Today, we're going to examine key socio-emotional themes that intersect things like intangible loss, not burdening others, and duty to the family with Jessica. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Jessica Chenfin joined Fuller's faculty in 2022 as an associate professor of MFT for the Doctor of Marriage and Family Therapy program, that's DMFT. She brings years of MFT teaching, research, and supervision experience, as well as clinical and consulting experience across community, medical, and ministry context. She's known in our field for her clinical expertise and scholarship integrating sociocultural lenses of race, gender, and generation into work with minoritized individuals, families, and communities, especially Asians. She's a regular presenter at local and national conferences, including AAMFT conferences, and she also speaks about self-therapist development, decolonizing supervision, and Asian American issues in therapy. In her last few years, her primary clinical focus has been on the well-being of physicians, especially through pandemic-related trauma and burnout. She is an AAMFT-approved supervisor. There's over 27 publications, including two books. Also, a great book for young MFTs. In 2020, she co-authored Finding Your Voice as a Beginning MFT. And the forthcoming title later this year, Asian American Identities, Relationships, and Cultural Legacies, Reflections from Marriage and Family Therapist. I really enjoyed this. I learned a lot. Hope you will too. And we'll be back after our interview with Jessica. Are progress notes stressing you out? Good documentation is essential for a high standard of care, but the time and effort involved can feel overwhelming. If you've experienced that overwhelm, Chronicler can help. 
Chroniclers Intuitive Note Builder lets you compose excellent progress notes right in your browser, often in three minutes or less. Sign up today for a two-week free trial at TherapyShelf.com. That's TherapyShelf.com and see how easy high-quality progress notes can be. Jessica, welcome to the AAMFT podcast. I have been wanting to talk to you for a while and I read this great article a couple of years back and we try to mix both the movers and shakers in the field of systemic therapy and also working with emerging topics and specific populations. We have never in the four seasons of the podcast talked about working with Asian client systems. First of all, tell us about your origin story, your journey into MFT, and then your interest in this population. Yeah, thanks so much, Eli, for having me. And yeah, it's such an honor. I'm grateful to be part of the AMFT. And Jessica Chen Feng, and I identify as a second generation Taiwanese American. And I know not everyone fully understands what these terms always mean. But when I say that I'm a second generation, that means that my parents immigrated from their country of origin, which was Taiwan, and then I was born in the States. So as a second generation person, I was born and raised in the greater Los Angeles area of California. And really how I got into this field is that I grew up in a predominantly Asian American slash Taiwanese Christian church. And there are a lot of immigrant communities where I was born and raised and it was growing at the time when my parents immigrated. There was one Chinese restaurant in the city, and by the time I was in middle school, there are countless. And my hometown and that region is known as Little Taipei, which is the capital of Taiwan. So anyways, you can just imagine the changing landscape of my family context and where I grew up. But I share that because in my Taiwanese immigrant church, this is a place, if people are not yet familiar, ethnic churches are often places people go to for not just religious and spiritual connection, but really social support. So when immigrant families are in need of a physician or a car mechanic or some sort of support, they will find connections through their church community. And this is where I grew up. And in that place, I saw lots of wonderful things happening and, and families supporting one another, all of the quote unquote aunties and uncles. We were not blood related. Uh, but these are the people that you saw every week at church and they cared for your family and, and all of these things. Um, but when I got to high school and college, what I noticed is that a lot of families were having real challenges, parents' challenges with children, whether it was based on language issues, difference, just lots of things that we would expect families to face, life transitions, marital issues, things like that. So anyways, I realized there wasn't a lot of support and there wasn't a lot of language either, even in our maybe theology or religious perspectives that allowed families to move toward health and healing. So that what started in my mind early on, oh, I want to be able to support these families in my community. At the same time, I had never even heard of psychology. For some Asian American communities, this is not a familiar a degree or major to pursue in college. And so I didn't even think to consider it. And it really wasn't until right when I was graduating college 
that another Asian American friend of mine was starting an MFT program. And I don't think Google was around then, but I think I yahooed it or searched it. And when I typed in marriage and family therapy and it gave me this definition, I was like, what is this? This sounds like exactly what I want to do. And so I just jokingly say the rest is history because I did some prerequisites and then started a master's program and really haven't looked back because as many of us know, it was the start of a long journey of healing in my life. So that's how I entered the field. Yeah, beautiful in your story. There's also some kind of generalizable things in the sense that many ethnic groups, not just Asians, but Latinos, African-Americans, they are skeptical of mental health and they get their counselor. They get their support from their community, which is their religious group or church, their fictive family, as you were alluding to. I'm interested in picking this career path because not only did you not really know about it, but much like many of our guests and my own journey, like once you think systemically, it's really hard to think any other way. So I am curious as we talk about the disparities and the barriers to getting treatment, going to family therapy, if you're in this population, what your own family thought about your trajectory and your chosen career path. I appreciate that question because these are, are real things, right, that many of us are navigating as we move into these careers. When I started the master's program, I think my mom had a bit more familiarity because she did her undergraduate studies in the States. My father less, but first of all, there wasn't clear language in Taiwanese for my parents to explain to my grandparents what I was going to school for. I am not very good at Taiwanese or Mandarin, but from what I understand, my dad would tell my grandmother, oh, Jessica is going to school to study how to care for people's hearts. I think that's like the literal translation. And so like caring for someone's heart, it, it has a parallel to a physician caring for a body. And remember at church, the older aunties and uncles would ask me, okay, so what are you studying? And I try to explain, I, I support people and their families and all of this. And so I think there was this misunderstanding that, oh, if Jessica's working with these clients must have really serious issues. And of course, none of us would have, and I'm saying that sarcastically, but my parents disconnected. Oh, our family would not need to see someone like Jessica. She is helping someone and other families who really need help. So I think for many years, there was that misunderstanding or lack of understanding, really, about what an MFT studies and how we see things. Over time, I think it's really shifted. Yeah. What if we just start generally, because our listeners, many will have, hey, this is in the scope of my practice working with this population, but it's really out of the scope of my competence. I don't really have that much experience. So as far as basic psychoeducation, what do you think MFTs need to know when working with Asian American client systems? Yes, no, that's such an important question. So I realized that my social location is different in that I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And so I know a lot of our listeners are tuning in from all different parts of not just our country, but around the world, perhaps. And so it, it, I think it's easy to understand or think we have a sense of certain racial groups based on what we see on media or things we've read up until now. But I think the most important thing is that the Asian American population is not a monolith. 
And I think it's really easy to think if someone looks a certain way, then, oh, maybe their family structures are all really similar or they all come from the same country of origin. But the Asian American community is represented by dozens of countries of origin, not just China. I know that is in part of our rhetoric these days is that the increase in anti-Asian hate crimes is largely due to the assumption that anyone who looks phenotypically Asian American is mistaken for coming from China. And But there are you know, dozens of countries, there are Southeast Asian countries, East Asian, South Asian. And I'm actually not even talking about Pacific Islanders. Oftentimes, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are sort of part of group or category. But I actually want to make the distinction today. I am no expert on Pacific Islander history or communities. So I just want listeners to know that make sure you ask your clients, maybe if they are recent immigrants, what their countries of origin are, and just to know that the distinctions. And within this large population, there's also such diverse immigration histories. It could be like my family, my parents immigrated, so I'm a second generation person. Or we have fourth, fifth generation Chinese Americans whose families maybe came in the 1800s to support the building of the railroads. There's immigration that has happened long ago and all kinds of reasons for it. And so anyways, those are just some things I wanted to mention because I think many of us, myself included, right, as an East Asian American person, there's a lot that I did not learn in my own learning and education in my K through 12 about Asian American history. I think very few of us learned it. Yeah, I think it's just to know some of those differences. Initially, that's going to be really key. You mentioned immigration. So let's talk about institutional oppression, how that and immigration discrimination historically has impacted Asian populations. Yes. So there's a really long history of immigration, and I am not the best at remembering dates, but there's an excellent book by Dr. Erica Lee. It's The Making of Asian America. And she goes through the whole history of Asians and Asian Americans being part of our U.S. fabric. And so this dates back to the 1500s and the 1600s. I'm not necessarily thinking about that right now, but we had people come as Asian slaves to the U.S. and all of that. But the important thing to know is that many waves of Asian immigration to the U.S. happened because of policies. So it wasn't that there was just a bunch of Asians from various countries were allowed to come at any given point. There were reasons for that. So, for example, a large group of men were able to come from parts of China to help with the railroad. Then at some point, there was a huge Chinese Exclusion Act, which, by the way, is the only policy ever that has excluded a specific ethnic group of people. And so that was around for a long period of time. And it's always related to the history of America's relationship with Asian countries. And then we have this 1965 um, Immigration Act of 1965. So another wave of Asian immigrants came after that point when things opened up. And that's when my family was able to immigrate was in the 70s. 
And there are a lot of parameters that immigrants would have to follow. Like, for example, you might have had to have a certain type of education or you needed family sponsors that were already in the U.S. And so it set up a structure where a certain type of Asian person or family was allowed to immigrate. So I, I wanted to mention that because America's relationship with Asian countries is always up and down historically, and it changes based on the U.S. feeling a sense of threat or not. So listeners may or may not be familiar with the term yellow peril, and that's been part of our country's history, which is whenever we feel a sense of threat, whether it's economically, there's a world war going on, we tend to feel threatened by people who look other than us. And I know I'm saying us and I am Asian American, but people who look not stereotypically European, European features and white. Anyways, that's important because now that shows up as people having racism against Asian Americans, because here we are still, we're hoping we're at the end of a pandemic, but still all of the anti-Asian hate crimes have been really painful. And these are things that happen to me and my family when we're out at the stores, uh, walking on the streets. And it's simply because I look a certain way. It is embedded in our collective consciousness in America that someone who looks like this might be spy or I can't trust them. If people are interested, there's all kinds of fascinating research, not just in our field, but across many fields where, for example, I read a study from the field of law where judges are more likely to give worse outcomes to people who are Jewish or Asian because there's this incorrect stereotype that these populations are not trustworthy. And that is the opposite to people who are white and Christian. So there are just these interesting things that in the fabric of our society and in the history, there are these beliefs that are embedded. So I always think of these take-homes. So from that first part, you said, is it important when you were working with a collated system, not only maybe to assess their level of acculturation, but should you ask about their immigration history and their sense of institutional oppression? What is the best way to do that? That it's to take a one down approach, especially if you know very little about this population or this cultural history, or like you said, different, we're not tr treating all Asians as a heterogeneous group. How do I assess when meeting a family for the first time or a system, th this sense of institutional oppression and in their immigration history. Yes, yes, so important. So one of the interesting things I've learned along the way in working with a lot of Asian American families is that Asian American communities generally are not super aware of the ways that we are being racialized. So, for example, if you're working with an Asian American family, they're one of the few in your city and are coming to you for support and they are fairly recent immigrants. And so I think it's always helpful and important to ask, tell me about your immigration experience, whether it was recent or maybe this is generations ago, just leaving it open so that we don't assume that maybe they're recent immigrants. But sometimes in that story, the, you'll hear about this family's resilience, first of all, is that 
I can't imagine. My mother left Taiwan as a high schooler. She was about to become a senior and just uprooting from the only country you've known and moving somewhere else. And it's a language you don't even know that you have to figure out how to speak. And then the parents having to change, oftentimes you talk about downward mobility, is that they have to move down a notch in terms of their socioeconomic status in order to make ends meet in a new country. And so immigration story is a huge part of a family's legacy, how they experience one another. Sometimes it's a huge cause for the tension or disconnect that parents and children feel. So yeah, that immigration story is important. And I want to mention too, is that we will have people who have come to the U.S. not by choice. My parents had the privilege of coming by choice, but we have a lot of Asian Americans who have come as refugees, who are leaving war in their countries or religious intolerance, all kinds of reasons. And so those are important because it'll tell us about their history of trauma as well. In regard to this piece about asking someone, what is your experience of institutional oppression? I would say the average Asian American client is not going to understand what that means or how to respond to it. Maybe some questions like, and I always talk about this in supervision. So first stating, maybe there are racial differences between the therapist and the client. I'm aware that your family's racial identity and background is different from mine. There are some things that I might understand, but there's a lot that I know I will be learning with you and from you. And in your experience, for example, as a Taiwanese American woman, living in this part of the country, are there things about your racial identity that are important to you that you'd like me to know? Or what is it like in this season of the COVID pandemic? How has that affected your family or your family's business or your work or your parenting? And so those might be more concrete ways to understand how this individual or the family experiences racialization because if we ask directly, what is your experience with racism? Sometimes it's shameful or embarrassing, or it's further traumatizing to, I think, any person of color to tell their therapist this if they haven't established, oh, this person isn't going to judge me or think any less of me. This is related to a whole nother stereotype, right? The model minority stereotype. But anyways, those are just to give some possible ways where you can enter the conversation with an Asian American client. Yeah, that's wonderful. And sometimes you're right. If you frame it that way, not only may it be disconcerting to them, what is your experience? That's not how necessarily people talk, or it may not be why they came to see you, even if we're the family therapist with one person in the room. But if we're working talking about different generations, where as yourself, a second generation is having issues with their first generation, either in caretaking for them or maybe making a choice of a marriage partner that goes against some of these cultural values. So I think a couple of questions that leads to is first, why you think is there a disparity between the rates in which Asian Americans seek mental health, psychotherapy, family therapy versus other ethnic or racial groups, number one. And then number two, what is just some traditional Asian cultural values that influence couple and family life that anyone working with this population should know about? Yes. Yeah. These are such important things to understand for sure. In the literature, I think for many years, 
We always talk about the disparity between the rates at which Asian Americans seek out mental health services as it's historically quite low. And I think there are a number of reasons documented in the literature, and there are also some that I think have yet to be written about, and these are just my clinical observations. But in terms of the research, we know that one is accessibility. So language is a huge one. I forget the percentage, but it's like a, a still a large percentage of our Asian Americans speak their um, native language. And that is most comfortable to them. And when I think about, if I'm speaking to my grandmother, my, my late grandmother in Taiwanese, we can talk about what we're going to eat for dinner or if I have homework left to do. This is when I was younger, day-to-day -day things. But we never had conversations about how I was feeling or how she was really doing. The language that you need for emotion, for connection, for vulnerability, all of these things that we value in the therapeutic process, language is everything. And so I think when someone is much more comfortable in their native tongue, it's hard to imagine seeing a therapist if English is their second or third language to talk about very deep and vulnerable things. I think the other piece related to accessibility is an Asian or Asian American person wondering, is this therapist or potential therapist going to have cultural humility or awareness about the things that I deal with and the things that my family cares about? Sometimes from a collectivist family system, it can feel like such a huge gap to an individualistic, more autonomous Western set of values. And I know I've heard many times that that assumption, maybe it's incorrect for some therapists, but that assumption can make it hard for someone to seek out psychotherapy. There are certainly some Asian American values that feed into that the stigma and the increased barriers. And so one would be saving face, right? So when I am working with Asian Americans, these days a lot of my clients are second and third generation folks. And if I ask them a question about their parents, I often preface it by saying, I'm going to ask you some questions about your parents. And I want you to know that I understand your parents have done the best that they can. And so when I ask these questions, I am in no way wanting to disrespect your parents. I know that they have fill in the blank, done all of these things for you. And that when you tell me things about them that might sound embarrassing or difficult, I am not judging you. That is huge because when someone comes to therapy and maybe their main concern or challenge is their relationship with their parents. But their whole lives they've lived under filial piety is so important. And if I say anything bad about my parents, oh my gosh, if they knew it would break their hearts. And so I want to maintain that respect for this client's elders, their parents, their family members, as I'm exploring the ways that this client has been hurt by them. So Anyways, that's another thing that comes to mind is that the fear of talking about my family, will it be disrespectful to them? Will the therapist judge Asian Americans even more if I put out our dirty laundry and all of these things? Anyway, there's these cultural gaps, the questions that a client might have. And the last thing I want to highlight is this, and I will say I have experienced this as a client myself. 
In my search for a therapist, I've had many wonderful therapists over the years, and I have yet to actually work with my own Asian American therapist. I will just mention that it's been hard to, to connect with one, but I worry and wonder about sometimes if I'm working with my white therapist, when I talk about my family problems, does this further add to the stereotypes or the things that this white therapist imagines Asian Americans to be like? Does it confirm their biases? That is always in my mind personally, and I've heard that from clients, is if I talk about these things, is it going to break someone's perspective of me as a model minority person? Will it make them think that I'm even more of a foreigner, that I don't belong in this country because, oh my gosh, my family is so quote-unquote crazy? So there's the fear of judgment. And so the therapist's racial background is always going to matter to the person in the family. And so anyways, those are some things I think about that are so either directly or peripherally related to mental health help seeking. No, it's interesting. It made me think, first of all, if you need to talk to someone, I have someone I talk to, you have someone you talk to. In your search, did you intentionally not look for an Asian therapist for yourself? Or was that by design or you just didn't find one that fit? I'm curious in your search for your own therapist, if you want someone from a similar background or a different background, or like many of us, you just want someone that's good yeah. Regardless of their ethnic background. Yes. No, I have thought about this a lot recently, actually. The first therapist I had is white woman. Amazing. I met her through my master's program and we were kind of paired together in a group therapy context and I loved her. And so I reached out to her for individual therapy work afterwards. And that was amazing. And so part of it was just coincidental. And she actually had quite a bit of exposure to Asian American cultures through her son's friends and things like that. And so there was a sensitivity and a respect that I just remember just she was really disarming. I never felt like I was reenacting some of the racial trauma I'd experienced growing up with her. And when she closed her practice, she referred me to a colleague, which was also a white woman. So that was the process. But I will say that in recent years, with the increase of anti-Asian hate crimes and myself and my family experiencing this and feeling the stress of it every day, I felt like the degree to which I am needing and wanting to talk about my own racial experiences, that I am currently looking for my own Asian American therapist. And part of the challenge, too, is that when I entered the field in like the early mid 2000s, I don't think there were as many Asian American therapists, at least in my peer group. I know there are a lot more Asian American psychologists who want to make that distinction, but in our field specifically, not that many Asian Americans. And to be honest, the many more that have come through afterwards, it's such a small community that I have concerns about seeking out an Asian American therapist because everyone knows each other at least a few degrees apart. 
And so as an MFT educator, I think many people might understand that, right? It's wanting to make sure that you have privacy and true confidentiality and that matters as well. But yes, lately I am looking for and am about to meet with for the first time an Asian American therapist for myself. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And the flip to that too, do you find you have one foot in academia, but you certainly are a practitioner. Do you find that Asian clients seek you out because knowing nothing about you other than your ethnic background? I will say yes, for sure. I think there is no question. And I've been in this unique role where my clinical work has been for an institution in the last few years. And so I had to close my private practice, but I have had so many requests or referrals come through in the last few years alone where clients are looking for Asian American therapists. And it is because they are wanting to talk about family, cultural issues, experiences with racism, so many things related to racial identity or cultural identity. The assumption is, this is not always right or true, that a therapist of the same racial or ethnic background as you is going to understand you, that we understand that's not always true. And training is actually the most important. And and I realized this in my own pursuit of an Asian American therapist is that we can be a, of a certain racial background, but not understand at all how to navigate racial conversations. And but all of it to say, yes, clients certainly do come to me because it is my area of focus, but also there is a comfort in oftentimes someone will say, I think you might know what I'm talking about, right? This is my experience as an Asian American woman. And then I will talk out loud about it because I don't want to make assumptions that what I know to be true, whether from research or my own experience, is going to be similar. And I will mention this at the end, but one of the things that made me want to talk to you is this great article you had published in Family Process a few years back where you address a lot of the things we're talking about right now and including these core themes when working with these populations. So things like intangible loss, not burdening others, your duty to your family. Let's talk about how those play out in the therapy room if I'm working with an Asian American client system. Yes. Great. So yeah, thank you so much for reading that article. And you know, what I will say, when I had a chance to write that article with some very dear colleagues, it was so personal, right? Between the four of us, we had all these great clinical examples to talk about, but a lot of it is something myself and two other co-authors were also Asian American, but just feeling really deeply. Number one, we talked about intangible loss. And what we meant by that is just the general emotional disconnection, many of the losses that Asian American families have experienced. And these are things that are very hard to identify. And I think there is some sort of overlap with the idea of ambiguous loss as well. But we call it intangible because these are things like history of war trauma. I know with a number of Korean American clients, and I have a colleague who's written about this, parents or grandparents who went through the war, a lot of times they never speak about it. They don't talk about their experiences. It was too painful, but it is felt even in the way that grandmother 
walks around the kitchen and the way all of these things that are felt in the body but maybe not articulated through language and that trauma like we know it's passed down generationally it's felt it's the emotional ways that it is carries out in relationship those are things we we can't really identify well but as we work with couples and families we know that there is so much intangible loss. Another one is what we also call like a generational gap. And in one of my other articles, I call it intergenerational disconnect, such as in my family, my parents immigrated. And so they were raised in Taiwan through childhood, most of high school and a little bit into college. And then they came to the States later and then had their children here. And so myself and my sister were raised in this bicultural Western American context. And the things that we've come to value or appreciate or believe, there is this gap between that and then what our parents believe and think. That gap causes so much pain for many families. And sometimes the loss is simply the lack of language to connect. My parents, I'm grateful they both speak English quite fluently, but I have many friends whose parents only speak Mandarin or only speak Korean. And it's really hard to communicate and have meaningful conversation with parents. And that is intangible loss. Like how you give words to the desire for your parents to be more emotionally present for you when they don't have the language to do. It's not like it's anyone's a burden of anyone's responsibility, but that is simply the outcome of immigration. So anyways, that's intangible loss, not burdening others. And this is a really profound one. So there's a general Asian value of silently enduring challenges. And let me try to give a concrete example. So in my family, my parents had to do a lot to make ends meet when we were growing up. And so my dad had his own business and my mother was helping out a lot and my grandmother took care of us in the home. And if I was stressed about school or had an issue with a friend or thing at all in my own life, my parents never said this to me, but I knew that I don't want to cause further stress to my parents. And even now as an adult, I have my own children. And if my nuclear family now is having a hard time, I don't want to tell my parents because I'm going to protect them by not having them further worry about us because they've already sacrificed so much for me. They're caring a lot on their own already. And so it's my duty in a way as a responsible adult daughter to care for my parents by not having them worry. Real quickly right there, that's beautiful. Yeah. Do you think that factor, this not burdening others, do you think that prevents adult children from bringing their parents to therapy in the, the sense that they won't understand it or it makes them worry about them when really can, we see it as enhancing communication or strengthening a bond, but the fear that it is going to burden them stops them from inviting them into the therapy room? Oh, for sure. That is such a great question. But yeah, there is no question that not wanting to burden parents will be a major barrier. But I think it's a bit more than that. There's the piece of, oh my gosh, if my parents knew that I quote unquote need to go to therapy, 
they're going to feel like they're bad parents, right? They're going to blame themselves. They're going to be like, oh, we shouldn't have worked so hard. We should have been there for our kids more. And so it's not so simple in that when we're talking about a first and second generation family dynamic, adult children typically understand their parents' significant level of sacrifice. That sacrifice is for the children. And so when the children are having a hard time, this is part of that collectivist family identity and value system. Parents inevitably feel responsibility for their children's welfare. And so it's even as adults, if my child has to go see a therapist, that's an indication of something I did wrong as a parent. And then it's on top of all of the history of stress and trauma and things like that and racism. So I wanted to highlight that because it's much heavier than what's going on in a nuclear family system. Having said that, I have worked with countless families where they have broken through these barriers. There are parents who have adopted different values who are open to maybe quote-unquote westernized thoughts and wanting to communicate openly. And they realize, you know what, when I was younger, I did not communicate well with my children. And yeah, that's why my adult child has this severe anxiety now. And I want to be part of their healing. So I want to put that narrative out there because more and more, I am shocked that in the last two years alone, the number of families, all of my Asian American therapist friends have waiting lists half a year out. And these are all Asian American families who are open and willing to do this hard, painful work. I just feel such a sense of respect for this kind of openness. And it is so hard because there are so many reasons why being open to talking about these hard things brings up deeper pain for an Asian American family. But it also means by the time someone shows up in your office, in person, virtually, whatever it is, there is so much resilience and courage that got them there. Oh, you said so many good things, Sarah. as we try to tie things together. If I'm listening to this and this is a population that interests me and I want to learn more, is two questions. Where do I go? You can plug certainly your own wonderful materials and your own scholarship. But number two, what do we need to do? Because, you know, we are both trainers and we have one foot in practice and one foot in academia and training the next generation of MFTs. What do we need to do as a profession to better train our MFTs to work with Asian populations? Yes. No, I love this question because to be honest, I had very few resources in my own training and I'm sad to say when I was going through the master's program, did not have a whole lot of Asian American MFT mentors. And so many of us have come together and try to create that for ourselves and hopefully for the next generation. But there are more and more articles. So, of course, certainly there's an article that you've referenced that myself and some colleagues wrote. If you do a general search, there are increasingly more articles. I will say the field of psychology has been such a support to working with Asian American families. I think we have a lot of Asian American family therapists now who are writing, who are publishing, and there's going to be more from a more systemic lens. But I will also say that there is the Asian American Psychological Association, which has its own journal. 
that journal is is like gold in terms of Asian American mental health. So in terms of just understanding like general mental health issues with various populations, if you're working with Filipino families, Indian families, there are countless articles that that journal has published. So that is a great resource. But our field has more and more articles. I would just encourage people to do a search. There is a forthcoming book that my colleague Lana Kim and I are working on right now. And the title will be Asian American Identities, Relationships, and Cultural Legacies. And it's going to be reflections from a group of MFTs. And so we're really excited about this book. And the intention is that it is to support all of us who are working with Asian American clients, but it's also to understand your Asian American colleagues, because these will be Asian American MFTs writing about our own lived experiences as it relates to the field, as it relates to being a therapist, working with Asian American populations. And hopefully that will be out sooner than later. And in terms of training and supervision, this is such a critical question. I know many of us are wrestling with this, right? How do we continue to improve our teaching and our supervision? I know many of us maybe learned how to work with certain populations from a more like cultural tourism model. This is what Chinese families are like. This is what Vietnamese families are like. And I think to some degree, there's some benefit to that because we learned some of the cultural nuances between various ethnicities. But I would say in terms of when we're teaching or supervising, we want to have, and in the field of medicine, which I've been a part of the last few years, we call it structural competence. We want to have historical and structural competence around racial issues that affect Asian American families. So this is a lot of what we talked about at the start of our conversation, which is understanding what are the, what's the history of the U.S. with Asian countries? How did that show up as various racist or racialized ways of perceiving Asian Americans? And how does that affect not just the individual, but the family? And could it be that my Asian American client's anxiety is not simply because they have anxiety running through their family, but that it's a function of being fulfilling the model minority stereotype and feeling like in the workplace they can never make a mistake or if they speak up people are going to think why is this Asian American using their voice so loudly that's unexpected so thinking about Asian Americans in terms of the ways that were racialized I think that is the important way to do training and supervision, in addition to understanding the various ethnic nuances that are present. Yeah. Anyways, all of it to say, Eli, I know many of your former guests on this great podcast have spoken to this before, but it's our own comfort as therapists in being able to talk about this, our own racial identity, our own internalized xenophobia, all of the stuff. So Anyways, thanks for those thoughtful questions. Eli, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast. Thank you very much, Jessica. Very informative. I cannot wait to read that new book coming out later this year. You can find out everything you need to know about Jessica at D-R-C-H-E-N-F-E-N-G. 
aamft.com. You can find out everything you need to know about us by going to aamft.org where you get the latest and greatest in all things systemic therapy. Perhaps you are a member of AMFT. Perhaps you've listened to this podcast and are interested in becoming a member. That's where you go. Follow me, E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M, elikaram.com, where you can find out everything that's going on, including uh, several new offerings I have, a new book on common factors, the heart and soul of what makes us relational healers and binds us together as systemic therapists, and my latest book with AMFT president-elect, Dr. Adrian Blow. It's called Bringing Common Factors to Life in Couple and Family Therapy for Rutledge. Also have a great MFT exam prep review book from Springer that just came out. You can follow, find out everything you need to know at elikaram.com. Follow the conversation on Twitter. The AMFT is at the AAMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Drop me a line, Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com, where we rely on you. I've been getting a lot of emails lately about future topics, even people uh, that suggesting guest for our program. I love to hear from you, the listener. Please leave us a review. Find all four plus seasons now into our fifth. All the back installments of the AMFT podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. Help us move up the ranks of the mental health podcast. Also, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you go for your podcast, you can find us, the AAMFT Podcast. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Stay systemic.